All right, 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. We had our youth night last week. It was awesome uh, to be blessed by them and uh, to be fed as uh, Justin taught us. Um, But we're going to return to 1 Samuel 25 uh, tonight. And two weeks ago, we looked at the start of this chapter, and it began with the impending doom of David and his men marching to wipe out Nabal and his workforce because of a personal insult. And uh, tonight we're going to answer uh, the question that verse 31 left us with. Abigail had a reasonable heart, and she does a masterful job at trying to repair the wrong her husband did, but does David have the same heart? Will he accept the apology? Will he be reasonable in his response. And the answer is, is kind of like uh, Tom's apology. Uh, kind of? Kind of? You know, I mean, it's kind of sorry, but not really, you know. And <laughs> David's, David's response, is he reasonable? Kind of? Sort of? Not really. While David is reasonable toward Abigail, uh, Nabal's slander triggered something in, da- in David. Uh, We're going to see from this moment forward a slow slide backwards from David. Um, He's been doing such a good job, and but this kind of this kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back, and 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 so he's going to begin to slide backwards on a a slow pace at first, but it's eventually going to land him in a place where he's willing to lead his men to take up arms against his own people by fighting with their enemies, the Philistines, and so. Tonight, we're going to look at uh, the importance of having a reasonable heart, but a little bit more from David's perspective. So, chapter 25, we begin in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, his response to her, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me, and blessed be your advice, and blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with my own hand. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, which has kept me back from hurting you, except you hasted and and come to meet me, surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any that urinated against the wall. So David, he received of her hand that which she had brought him and said unto her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have hearkened to your voice and have acknowledged or accepted your person. David starts off and he praises the Lord for sending Abigail to him. That's what the phrase blessed be means. It means praises be to. So he says, praises be to the Lord God of Israel, which sent you this day to meet me. David actually, his response has three things that he praises. He's going to praise the Lord. Then he's going to praise Abigail's discernment. And then thirdly, he's going to praise Abigail uh, for her involvement in the solution to this problem. But he starts off here by praising the Lord for sending Abigail today to meet me. I think it's interesting that David acknowledges that it's the Lord who sent Abigail to him, which conversely means that Abigail was willing to obey the Lord's leading, right? And God put something on her heart when she heard the the message from one of her servants, and, and she responded to it quickly and obediently. You know, it's interesting. We, like Abigail, are sent by the Lord to those who are headed towards wickedness, right? The Lord sends us to those who are headed towards wickedness. We are sent to plead with them to turn from their current path and to do things the Lord's way. And so, you know, before we even dig into David's heart, it's a good question to ask, am I being obedient to God's sending? 
You know, am I willing, you know, and, and, and ready, you know, to go and meet someone who's headed towards destruction, to share the good news with them, to seek to encourage them to turn around and to follow the Lord. You know, it's important that we note how different Abigail's response is to David's response in this crisis. Abigail hears about it, and she immediately, you know, goes and does what the Lord tells her to do, even though it's a dangerous situation. David, on the other hand, when he gets the news that Nabal's insulted him in verse 13, we don't see any type of leading from the Lord. He says, gird you on every man his sword. And then we read in verses 21 and 22 why they're girding. He says that. And David had said, surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that pertains unto him. And he has repaid me evil for good. So and more also do God unto the enemies of David if I leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light any that urinates against the wall. That's a phrase for a man, by the way. He says, if I leave any man alive in Nabal's employ. David did not see himself as God's ambassador like Abigail did. David was following himself. If you note all the I's and all the me's in verses 21 and 22, you'll be surprised because there's quite a few. David was all about himself in this situation. It wasn't about following the Lord. And David also acknowledges this. In verse 33, when he blesses her discernment, he acknowledges that he had, was on his own in this matter, that he was going to do something wrong. He says, and blessed be your advice, and blessed be thou which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging not the Lord or righteousness or anything, but from avenging myself with mine own hand. He acknowledges this. He said, it's a good thing somebody listened to the Lord because I wasn't. I was mad, and that's all I could see at that moment in time. And so he blesses her. He says, blessed be your advice. It means good judgment or discernment. You know, I hear people a lot of times say, oh, you know, he's got the gift of discernment. We'll address that in a little bit. Discernment is the ability to grasp and comprehend what's going on around you so that you know the right thing to do. It's the ability to grasp and comprehend what's going on around you so that you know the right thing to do. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about discernment. He said, discernment, he said, it's not the diff- knowing the difference between right and wrong. He said, it's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Isn't that interesting? That's such a good quote because it's true. It's not just the difference between knowing right and wrong because so often that's obvious. Where we get messed up is because we're almost Right? You know, we get into a situation where, you know, we're close to right, but we totally blow it because it's not entirely right. It's just almost right. I have found myself in so many situations where I'm going to talk to somebody, and I'm like, all right, I, I got the idea how I'm supposed to handle this. I know what the Lord wants me to do. And you get in there, and then somewhere along the lines, you lose discernment, and you say something really dumb. Or you do it in an attitude that's just not appropriate. It's almost right. Discernment, therefore, is not a spiritual gift. Discerning of spirits is a spiritual gift. That's what the Bible says is a spiritual gift. That's a whole different thing, and I'm not going to get into that tonight. That is different from good judgment, which is what discernment is. Now, David tells us where good judgment comes from in Psalm 119, verse 66. Psalm 119, verse 66, that long psalm in the Bible David tells us where discernment comes from. Verse 66 of Psalm 199 says, teach me good judgment and knowledge, and here it is, for I have believed your commandments. 
See, David explains that good judgment doesn't, is just something that God supernaturally gifts to us. It comes from knowing what God says in his word and then learning to rely on it instead of my own understanding. That's where discernment comes from. In the New Testament, it talks about how they, we have had our discernment exercised because we are applying the word of God to our lives. We are learning the word of God and then we're living it out. We're applying it to our lives. And so that knowledge of God's word, when it's mixed with faith, it gives us an understanding of God's character and therefore an understanding of his ways with us. And that's what keeps us from saying the wrong thing in that moment or doing the wrong thing, even though we might be almost right. We know that's not the way to go. That's not the wise thing to say right now. That's not the appropriate way to act right now. That's not the appropriate tone of voice to use. And so we avoid catastrophe and being almost right for what pleases by doing what pleases the Lord instead. Abigail didn't just know what was good in this situation. (laughs) She knew exactly what God wanted her to do to avert a great catastrophe. She had good judgment. And so David praises her good judgment Blessed be your advice. And then he says, blessed be you. You, you are, should be praised, Abigail, because you kept me. Yes, the Lord kept me, he sent, but he did it by sending you. And you were faithful, and so you have kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with my own hand. You have stopped me, restrained me, hindered me from doing something wicked. David praises Abigail because she saved lives and she kept David from a great sin because Verse 34 tells us what David had intended to do. He says, for in very deed, which means on the other hand. In other words, if you had not done this, if you had not been obedient to the Lord, and if you had not hindered me, he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives, which has kept me, he's the one that kept me back. He used you, but he kept me back from hurting you. Except you had hastened and come to meet me, surely there would not have been one left unto Nabal by the morning that urinates against the wall. David, I think it's interesting the language he uses here because he says, what I'm about to tell you is as much a truth as the truth that God's alive, as the Lord lives. When someone says that, what they're saying, what I'm about to tell you is just as much a truth as the fact that God is alive. Aren't you glad you serve a living God? I mean, that's one thing we can always count on. We can always know that our God is real. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, how can I know that God's real? Well, let me share with you that following Jesus will always have an element of believing in what you can't see. So if you're looking for all of the elements of faith to be something you can see, you're going to be disappointed because the Bible doesn't claim that that's what faith is. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it tells us that faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's the realization of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, our faith is not entirely based on what we cannot see. There is a substance to our faith. There is a substance to our hopes. Our worship, the Bible says, is reasonable. It's logical. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 calls it our reasonable, our logical act of worship. How is our faith logical or reasonable? How how is it a substance we can see? 
Well, creation is the most basic substance. That God exists and that he is all-powerful is something we can learn just by looking out our window. In Romans chapter 1, verses 20, verse 20, it tells us, for the invisible things of God have been clearly seen by those things that are made. It says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. How? Being understood by the things that are made. And then it tells us what the things we do know about God from that. His eternal power and his Godhead. The fact that he exists, his Godhead, and his, all, his all, all, all powerfulness, his eternal power. So that we are without, they are without excuse. So creation is the most basic substance we have for our faith. We call this general revelation. You don't need a Bible to understand that. Any person can look out there and know God's real and he's big, right? And to ignore and reject that is to ignore and reject what you can see with your own eyes. Now, the greatest substance, though, is not creation. It is God's Word. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, when God is reasoning with Israel in their idolatry, he says to them in verses 6 through 8, he says, thus says the Lord, this is Isaiah 44, if you're taking notes, Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. He says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who as I shall call, the the phrase there means to proclaim something, and shall declare it, and shall set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, well, who are they? Let them show them. He, he, he calls anyone to the table. He says, you say you're God, you say you're real, then you come and declare what's real, you come and declare what's true, you come and predict the future, and let's see how you do. And of course, nobody can do that except the Lord. In verse 8, he says, fear you not, need to be afraid. Have I not told you from that time, and have I not declared it? You are even my witnesses. I'm the only one who does this. Is there a God beside me? Yeah, there is no God. I know not any. I've invited anyone to come to the table to predict accurately 100%. No one has come. I'm the only one who can do that. In Isaiah 44, verses 24 through 26, he says, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb, I am the Lord that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself, that frustrates the tokens of the liars, these predictions that these prophets make and stuff like that, that turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolish, that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers." Jesus taught the same truth. In John 5, 39, he said, you search the scriptures, rightly so, because they speak about me. You know, the Lord, through his prophets, predicted things. And so we call this special revelation because it contains, God's word contains eyewitness accounts and proves through predictive prophecy. Now, what's interesting about this concept of our faith that there's a seen component and an unseen component, we see that is the cons- consistent teaching of Scripture. In Second Peter, he describes our faith this way. In Second Peter chapter 1, I believe, verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, 
Peter is about to go home to be with the Lord. He's about to be executed for his faith. He was an eyewitness. And he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. And it said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. He goes, My faith is based on something I heard with my own ears. I saw with my own eyes. It's real. I'm not making stuff up and passing it on to you. But then he says this. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place. He says, I've got my eyewitness account, but you've got all of Scripture here. You've got the entirety of Scripture that is something that is real, that is substance, that you can know that the Lord is real. You can examine this thing. I tell you, every time God comes through, when I find something here and I go, Lord, this doesn't seem to line up with what I'm seeing. And the Lord says, then you need to keep digging, son, because the problem's not me. And every single time the Lord shows himself to be faithful. I am the most skeptical of skeptics out there. I don't believe anything anybody tells me. I'm certainly not just going to take anything at face value. And I have seen over and over again of, you know, my 30 plus years of walking with Jesus. His word is real. It's proven to be true. So he talks about what is our substance, but then look at the end of verse 19 here in 2 Peter 1, because then he gets to the unseen part. He says, you know, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Verse 19 here describes the substance and the unseen part of our faith. In other words, God's word is the light that shines so we can see. We have substance. And that is the thing we hold on to as real until Jesus, the part we can't see, until he returns for us. There will always be an unseen part. I cannot tell you. You say, how do you know Jesus is coming back? Well, the word tells me. I need more. I need to see him. Well, the Bible doesn't promise you will, not until he returns. So you need to have the part that is the substance, base of your faith, but then there is the part where you need to trust the Lord because without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord, right? For you who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, there is one other substance to our faith, and it is God's work in the lives of his people. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, he tells the Corinthians, you, you are our letters, our of recommendation, our, of commendation. You are living epistles, you know, with God's work written on your heart. You know, when we say things like, why doesn't God do miraculous things for me? It's because we hear about the miraculous things God's doing in others. It's not because we don't think miracles exist. It's not because we don't say it because they don't ever happen. We say it because why didn't it happen to me? You know, you ever been in that situation where somebody, you know, tells you a story and they're like, man, God came through for me. It's so amazing. You know, we, we had this situation come up and, and God gave me a new car. And you're like, yeah, wh- wh- where am I in the queue? Somebody's awake. There are times when it doesn't seem like God's doing that in our lives, and we question, like, God, are you out there? It's not because we don't hear the stories of him working in other people's lives. It's because we don't necessarily see it in that moment in our lives. That's why it's so important to be around other believers, though, 
because we are living letters of God's real work. Peter calls us living stones in what Jesus is building, right? Well, David believed God being real was the most real thing out there. And he has to. <laughs> he has to be real because he's the only person who could have changed David's mind from his intent to kill every single man in Nabal's employ. And now when David says this, I could almost imagine, you know, a little gulp from Abigail like, oh, that's what was going to happen. <laughs> that's what we just averted. This is the part where I would have taken a, a deep gulp followed by a, sly, a sigh of relief. She'd been right to follow God's leading because an absolute disaster had barely been averted. And sadly, of course, when we obey the Lord, it doesn't always end that way because it takes two to tango, right? It does. It takes two to tango. David could have resisted the Lord's work through Abigail and hardened his heart. You know, which brings us now back to our text and, and our application of do I have a reasonable heart or the importance of a reasonable heart? You know, do you listen to people who tell you you're headed in the wrong direction? Ever? Or do you resist those voices because you always believe you're right? Which of those two attitudes describes your life better? One of those real frank conversations I have to have with people every once in a while is I say, do you ever listen to someone else when they tell you to not do what you want to do? I mean, has there ever been a time where you've said, you know, maybe you're right. I need to think about that and pray about that. Because if the answer to that is no, then you might want to consider if the problem's not everyone else. It's very easy to say, well, you don't understand. Or, you know, I know what I, know what I need to do here. Or I, I, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. That may be true. All of those things may be true. But we are so fallible. It's why we need to listen to other people. It's why the Bible tells us that there's wisdom in many counselors. It's why it tells us the importance of humility and allowing good counsel to come into your life. Because if you say that the attitude that describes your life a little better is the one that resists other people's voices, that is not a reasonable heart. That's a stubborn, proud heart. You know, we quote Proverbs 16, verse 18 all the time. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But we often forget the verses that are right around it. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 16 through 20 says this. It says, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keeps his way preserves his soul. Pride, in contrast to that, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He that handles a matter wisely shall find good, and whosoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Do you see the verses that frame that verse that's the famous one? The other ones are the ones we don't tend to remember, but those are just as important. This is not just a generic warning against pride. It's a warning against ignoring good counsel, of ignoring those who share God's word with us because, well, I think I know better. But these verses here in Proverbs 16 are also a promise of something better, not destruction, not a fall, something better to the one who does listen to biblical counsel, something better to the one who does stop to ponder if maybe and consider maybe my judgment is actually bad in this situation. Maybe I'm not having the right approach to this. 
When I, my family growing up, listening skills was not something that we, we were instilled with. We, we talked over one another all the time, and the only reason that you were being quiet when someone else was speaking was because you were trying to figure out what you're going to say next. And I remember when I went my, my, my uh, well, I started dating my wife, and uh, she didn't fight very well. Well, she learned to fight. <laughs> but she didn't very well at first. And man, it was just boom, 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 boom. I, I could get her anytime I wanted to. You know, if it was a, we we're going to get an argument, I could win it. And little bit by little bit, I saw how it was breaking my wife's heart. How the reality was, I just didn't listen to much of anything she had to say. Oh, I wasn't a complete idiot, a complete fool. There were certainly times I would listen to her advice or her thoughts on things. There were things that were clearly, obviously wrong with me. But I didn't want to see all the other things that were very clearly wrong with me. They just weren't clear to me. And the person who loved me the most, who cared about me the most, to point them out because she wanted me to go on with Jesus and to grow in the Lord, I didn't have the time to listen to. That leads to a bad spot. And so, and I had to learn to cultivate a, a heart that actually listens, that stops before it's going to respond and speak and says, okay, think about what was just told to you. And it's funny because there'll be times when we have an argument now, very rare, but when we do have those arguments, we don't have the energy to fight anymore. It's, it's just, it's like, you just kind of think, of it, say, ah, it's not worth it, it's not worth it, it's not worth it. And she'll probably be able to verify this. There are times when I'm like, and I stop, and I go, you know what? You're right. You're right. I got nothing. And sometimes just taking a moment to stop and actually process what the other person has said. And I say, you know what? Is that good counsel? Maybe, maybe I do have bad judgment in this situation. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good to come to a place where you go, you know what? My judgment stinks in this, this, this conversation. I, I, you're right. Because it keeps you from a possible catastrophe. It brings the blessings that Proverbs 16 talks about. You know, having a reasonable heart is a result of being humble. And God gives grace to the humble, doesn't he? Don't you need a lot of grace? I know I do. <laughs> I need a ton of grace. Well, David, he is reasonable in this instance. And so in verse 35, back here in 1 Samuel 25, it says, so David received of her hand that which she had brought him. This was that, the supplies that she had had all her, her, her servants get prepared and put on five donkeys and came out to meet David with them. So David received those supplies, and he says to her, go up in peace to your house. In other words, peace, shalom. I want the best for you wholeness, completeness, soundness. And then he says, see, which means know this. I have hearkened to your voice, and I have accepted your person. The phrase there, to accept a person, it means to lift up their face. What he's telling Abigail is he's saying, Abigail, go without any worries for today or the future as it concerns this conflict today. You and everyone associated with you are not those I look down on with anger anymore. 
You've been raised up to the same spot you had been in as if this conflict had never happened. I've accepted your person. I've lifted up your face. And so, David forgives the wrong done to him and turns away from his wicked course of action. And that's what a reasonable heart does when it's confronted with wisdom. So, yay, catastrophe averted, right? Yes, but Abigail still has to go home because she never told her husband what she was doing. He has no clue about this meeting. So, verse 36, look at what it says here. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. Abigail has to wait to tell Nabal because he's drunk. It, it, early in the chapter, it mentioned that Abigail didn't tell Nabal what she was uh, going to do to stop David from destroying them. Well, now we know why. Why didn't she tell him? He wasn't in a position to have a conversation. He was having a feast like he was the king. I think it's interesting it mentions that because it's ironic to me. You remember the passage in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 5, where King Belteshazzar is throwing a feast? Remember what does Daniel tell him? Tonight's your last night to be alive, buddy. You might be throwing a big party and thinking it's a great thing. This is your last night alive. Unbeknownst to King Belshazzar, the Persian army was digging through. Uh, they, they had, I'm not digging through. They had um, diverted the Euphrates River, and they were going to sneak into the city via the, the, dead, the uh, dry riverbed that ran right through the middle of the city. Didn't have to scale any walls. Didn't have to lose any men with a siege. You're just going to get right into the city with no problem. He thought he was perfectly safe. And in the same way, unbeknownst to Nabal, an army of 400 men was coming to exterminate him and everything that was dear to him. And he's throwing a party, thinks everything's great. You know, there's a lesson there for us. We may act like kings, but we are in control of very little, right? We are in control of very little. Better to act with a little humility than like the highest authority in the land. Better to act with submission than like someone who's accountable to no one. Well, he was partying, celebrating. It was a sheep shearing. This is a common occurrence when sheep shearings occurred, and he had a lot to drink, and so he was not in a position to have a conversation. So we see here that Abigail wasn't hiding anything from Nabal. Because of the influence of the alcohol, he was not capable of making decisions at this point in time. She planned to tell him everything once he was sober. So verse 37, the morning comes. When it came to pass in the morning, when he's sober, when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him. The word there, died, means failed. He's not dead yet. His heart failed, and he became as a stone. He got rigid, and it came to pass about 10 days later that the Lord smote Nabal, and he died. Wow, that was interesting resolution to that conflict. Again, Abigail is not flying solo on this meeting with David to be sneaky. She's doing it because Nabal's not capable of doing it at this point in time. She lets him know what happened at the soonest point possible. And when it says here that Abigail, verse 37, in the morning, told him these things, that literally means she told him everything. She left nothing out. Told him what she gave David, told him of her conversation with David, what David planned to do. This is very important to understand if you're married. I have met many Christians, and, and please understand, I, I'm speaking to husbands and wives now. I'm not singling out one gender or one part of the marriage here. I have met many Christians who perceive their spouse as less spiritual than them or perceive their spouse as detrimental to the family's well-being. And as such, 
they will arbitrarily make decisions for the family or hide information from that spouse they don't trust. That is not how marriage works. God will not bless and he will not honor that. If Abigail could be in the horrible marriage that she's in, but still involve her husband as much as was possible given his state, then so can you and I, don't you think? So can you and I. Because even if your spouse really is a fool, Abigail is an an example of how to handle being married to a person who makes bad decisions. Okay? Now, here we see that Nabal, when he hears the news, his heart fails him. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us, like, if he felt overwhelmed by this information or if he got mad uh, or if some other kind of stress from this triggered a heart attack. I don't know. But whatever the initial cause that brought it on, God is the reason he doesn't recover from it. Look at verse 38. And it came to pass about 10 days later that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. Me personally, I wonder if God allowed him to have a heart attack to get his attention and gave him 10 days to repent. That's, That's me personally. I don't know. That's what I think. But at the end of those 10 days, whatever the reason was, the Lord said, you're done, buddy. You're done. And he died. He smote him so that he did not recover. He died from this heart attack. Now, while the righteous in heaven will say, just and true are your ways, O God, when he judges the wicked, there's no party in heaven because God does not derive joy from judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 18, 31 through 32, he pleads with Israel to repent. He says, for why will you die Ezekiel 18, 31 and 32. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit, the Lord tells him. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure, no joy in the death of him that dies, says the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. That's what God takes pleasure in, when people repent. He doesn't take pleasure in judging the wicked. Don't let anyone ever tell you that, by the way. God God rejoices in justice being done in the sense of justice is right and it needs to be done, but he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There's no party going on. In contrast, what does the Bible say happens when one sinner repents in heaven? All the angels rejoice, right? There is a party, you know? There is rejoicing, which is what makes David's response here a bit bothersome. Look at verse 39. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord. Praises be to the Lord that has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. We'll get to that second weird part later. Let's start with the first weird part here. David, he praises the Lord. He says, praise be to the Lord. And then he, it's interesting, he gives two reasons, but then says that's not actually the reason he's praising the Lord. Two reasons. He says, number one, the Lord pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal. Number two, that God kept his servant from evil. First thing here we look at, he he says, praises be to the Lord, because the Lord, he says he pleaded the cause of my reproach. To plead the cause means to be someone's defender, their defense attorney in a legal, a legal dispute. So he says, God was my defense attorney when Nabal 
reproached me. The word there means insulting or harmful words. Nabal did falsely accuse David and his men of rebellion against Saul. David had never done that. His men had never done that. So this slander of Nabal could have incorrectly turned others against David and his men. It's good to praise God when he defends you from false accusations, right? That's a good thing. David doesn't praise the Lord for that, though. He also mentions here that what else God did is he, God kept him from his servant, he's referring to himself, from great evil. Listen, if God pleaded your case when you were wrongfully accused of something, that's something to be thankful for. Praise the Lord for it. If I was about to do something wicked and God stood in my path and he turned me back in the right direction, that's another good reason to praise God. But that's not why David praises God. It says, praises be to the Lord, and then he says here, that pleaded the, he just says this is what God did, but then he says why he's praising the Lord. For, that's the because, why praises be to the Lord? Well, God did these two things, but what I'm praising him for is for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. While David mentions these two wonderful things God did, his praise isn't for those two things, it's reserved for something else justice. Oh, not justice in the sense of righting a wrong. Abigail had already done that, right? Abigail had already righted the wrong to David. The justice here is in the sense of giving Nabal what he deserved. Oh, man, those words are hard for me even to say. Oh, he got what he deserved. Ooh, I just, I cringe anytime I hear somebody say that, especially if I hear a Christian say that. How can David in the same breath say that God didn't give him what he deserved, but turned him around and and going in the other direction, but then praise God for giving Nabal what he deserved? There's a contradiction there. And this is the backsliding slope that David has begun to fall down on. He's tired of being falsely accused. He's tired of being wronged. And it's going to lead David down a very dark path. Now, maybe you're thinking, but that's not fair. I mean, David did the right thing and he gets mistreated, right? No, it's not fair. You're correct. But it is the life of a believer. The life of a believer isn't always fair. One of my most challenging scriptures that I ever read when I go through the New Testament is 1 Corinthians, I want to say it's chapter 6. I think it's 6. When Paul just chastises the Corinthians for taking each other to court. And he says, are you, are you not God's people? Do we, do we not have the ability to judge these cases inside the church? Can you not bring this before your brothers and sisters and have them decide who's right and who's wrong and what needs to be done? And then he, he says this, or even better, why not just be defrauded? Why not just let the wrong happen to you and take it rather than go and bring your issue out in the open before the world? Bam! You hear that and you just go, what? But that's not fair, Lord. And it's almost like the Lord goes, ahem, Take a glance at the cross. Take a glance at the cross, son, daughter. You don't want what's fair, trust me. And I don't want what's fair. I want mercy. (laughs) I want mercy. And that is the life of a believer, to experience God's mercy and to give it to others. We read about it in our scripture reading in Micah chapter six. 
He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly. No, that doesn't mean you seek justice upon other people. No, no, you do justly. You do the right thing. And then it says in regards to others, you love mercy. And you walk humbly with your God. I can tell you that there are many things that I'm seeing today called Christianity, seeing things that Christians do, and they could never be defined as walking humbly with your God. Now, living the kind of life we're supposed to live, the Micah 6 command from God, it may not win others to our way of thinking. It may never bring about fairness. But it does give us the opportunity to shine the light of the gospel that some might be saved. And that's what Peter exhorts us. You can read it on your own time in 1 Peter 3, in verses 13 through 17, when he says, listen, be ready, you know, to give a, a reason for the hope that lies within you. Always be ready, you know? But then if you read the, we always say that part, but we forget the bottom part, which says, with meekness and humility. Why? Why do we do that? Let's actually look. Let's look. We got some time. I won't spend that too much time, too much time lambasting David for his polygamous relationships. Hopefully I don't need to explain why that's wrong too much. 1 Peter 3, not meekness and humility, meekness and reverence, respect, <clears throat> Paul, Peter asks a question in 1 Peter 3. He says, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? The answer is most people won't. If you're doing the right thing, most people aren't going to wish harm upon you. But, verse 14, but, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, what does he say? Get them back? No. He says, blessed are you. And don't be afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but instead sanctify the Lord in your hearts. How do you handle this? You've got to set the Lord apart in your heart. He is different. He doesn't handle things the way I handle them. He went to the cross for me. So you set the Lord apart in your heart, and then you be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, reverence, respect. Meekness means I could blast you right now, but I'm not going to because I want to be like Jesus who went to the cross for me. Jesus, who at any moment even told Peter, he said, Peter, don't you understand? If anybody understood meekness, it was Peter. Because Peter wasn't meek. Jesus described himself. He said, I am meek and lowly of heart. And he proved it to Peter when he turned to him and he said, Peter, don't you understand? I can call in an entire legion of angels to deal with all these crazy people. Don't get it. Could have come arrest the Son of God? Really? I mean, you know, when they first come to arrest him, they, he said, uh, who are you coming out for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am. And they all fell on their face. Peter, put your sword up. I don't need any help. If I want to get this, I got this. Meekness. And Peter learned that lesson. Do it with meekness. Do it with, I could blast you right now, but... That is not my Lord's heart. With respect, having a good conscience, knowing you've done the right thing, 
that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for doing well than for evil doing. Walking humbly with our God. Well, David, unfortunately, doesn't stop with his slippery slide, just with his attitude towards Nabal. Because at some point, he also decides, you know what? I'm not only tired of being falsely accused of things, I'm tired of living like a fugitive. I'm tired of being alone. I'm getting another wife. In fact, I'm going to get a few more. Look at verse 40 here in 1 Samuel 25. It says, and David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. He doesn't come personally. He just sends messengers. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail to Carmel, they spake unto her saying, hey, David sent us here to take you to him to wife. So pack your bags, lady. Isn't that a wonderful proposal? Will you marry me via letter? Or not even letter, someone else asking. And it doesn't sound like they got down on one knee. I don't even think they took her to dinner. <laughs> you couldn't come yourself, David? Marriage is kind of important. Well, they come in a bad time. It says she arose. The phrase there references the fact that she was still even in mourning. It was the norm for mourning to last about seven days, which means she was not out and about doing stuff. And yet, what an amazing woman Abigail is. She arose, bowed herself on her face to the earth, and said, Behold, let your handmaiden be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Let me wash your feet. They didn't treat her with any hospitality. didn't do anything special for her. You know, I mean, David doesn't have the time to come and ask her to marry him. But she washes their feet. She serves them. And then it says that Abigail hasted and arose and rode upon a donkey with five damsels of hers that went after her, and she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. That's all we know about their relationship. Was she in a hurry because she feared David's reaction if she didn't say yes? Was she in a hurry because she was excited? We'll never know. Because her last recorded words in Scripture are, let me come wash your feet. Let me serve you. I can tell you this, though. She couldn't have been excited about what she found out when she got to David because apparently this isn't David's first second wife. In verse 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were also, both of them, his wives. The phrase also, had ta- or also took means he also had taken. In other words, David had already gotten married a second time. We don't know where David met this other woman. We don't even know when David married her. We know almost nothing about her except that David had some kids with her. But apparently David's commitment to doing the right thing despite Saul's wrong to him had already started to crack before his conflict with Nabal. Because the next verse tells us why he did this. He got news at verse 44, but Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Falti, the son of Laish, which was of Galum. Word comes to David that he's given his wife to some other man. And David decided, oh, no, he didn't. Well, fine, I'll go find myself another wife. I'll find two. And David, of course, doesn't stop there. I have heard Bible teachers defend David's polygamy, that while this wasn't God's plan, you know, to have multiple wives, having multiple wives was allowed, to which I say, rubbish, Even if God was okay with an Israeli man having two wives, which he was not, David was not just an Israeli man. 
He had been anointed to be king. And God's word is more than clear about a king's marital status. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, one of the things it says that kings aren't allowed to do is multiply wives. David knew better. He knew he wasn't supposed to do this. The writer of 1 Samuel points out that David had two wives at the same time in verse 43, and he doesn't qualify it by saying, but that's okay. He points it out as a negative. Now, I will not deny that David has been through a lot, more than I have. And I'll be the first person to say that I have made some of my worst decisions in the hardest moments of my life. But many of those poor decisions of mine have left scars, the scars I never needed to have. And David is going to make many good decisions during his time as a fugitive, but he's going to make a few very poor decisions He'll make them in the name of trying to take something for himself, to find some kind of scrap of happiness in a very unhappy situation. And Jesus told us that when we seek to save our life, what happens? We lose it. David lost some things because David's heart wasn't completely reasonable. He lost something during these hard years. He took something for himself, but he gave up a part of himself as well. And that resulted in David becoming cold, just like Saul, when it came to the area of family. There are many good things that we will learn from David in 1 Samuel, but they do not include being a husband or a father. David was a bad husband, and he was a worst father. And there's a lesson for us in that as well. If you are being wronged or life is really hard right now, please, please, I plead with you, don't make David's mistakes. Don't trade what you can't hold on to for that which is worth so much more. Let the Lord reason with you. Let him persuade you from self-oriented paths. Let him lead you to the cross. Let him lead you to the place of self-denial and the things that last forever that come with it. Amen? And maybe if you're struggling with that tonight, with either being wronged or wrongs that have been done to you in the past, I really strongly encourage you to read an excellent book on this topic. It's called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards, and it revolutionized my life as a young man. It goes over the life of Saul, David, and Absalom, and it shows the danger of becoming like those who have wronged you and the blessing of obeying God in the midst of being wronged. And if there's anything that our generation desperately needs to learn is that lesson. So let's all stand. Lord, we understand from your word that there is indeed a blessing that comes from obeying you, from denying self, even when we're wrong. To know, Lord, we, we know the blessing is not always that it's going to work out for us. Lord, I think of so many times when you've called me to a course of action and I said, okay, Lord, I'm gonna obey you. I don't think it's gonna work out. And then it, it was rough. But there was a blessing to be had in that. It wasn't necessarily that the situation worked out like I'd hoped. But there was a closeness with you. There was an eternal value, something of eternal value that would never be taken from me, Lord. So I thank you for that promise. And I pray for my dear brothers and sisters this evening who maybe they're struggling with wrongs done to them or maybe they're being wronged right now. Would help them to learn this lesson, the lesson of being okay with just taking it to you, saying, Jesus, this hurts. It's not right and it hurts. 
but like you, showed me mercy and didn't give me what I deserve. But I too will show mercy and not repay evil for evil. Or teach us not to try to grab on to little bits of happiness that we might find in our own understanding in, in difficult and unhappy times. Help us to trust you with all of our hearts, knowing, Lord, that you'll lead us to that eternal reward with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.